it's not something you can ever master. It's like a constant chase. You're never going to be done learning in chefing. You're never going to be done getting better. You can never be the best. You can never finish. Like you can never you can never master it. And I think that's really my favorite thing. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Getting an opportunity to lead a team as a head chef is a dream of many in the industry, but it's also quite a daunting role too. How does the chance to lead a team and express yourself on the plate change the way you approach your craft? Sofika Bolton is a chef in Perth. Sofika, how are you? I'm really good, thank you. How are you? Good. It's good to get you on the show. You uh, recently uh, had a your first head chef role at uh, Bar Rogue over there in Perth. What, what what was that experience like for you? Um, exciting, scary, um, <laughs> all of the above. Uh, it was a really good experience to learn. Probably the best experience to learn I've had so far, and kind of to teach as well. Um, not that I think of myself as much of a teacher, but yeah. Were you surprised about how different the role was compared to being part of the team? Um, yeah, definitely. I think the biggest surprise was my assumption that I would go into this and suddenly be the leader, but actually you're still a very big part of the team and you have to work that way. Um Obviously, I had a really small team at Rogue. It was actually only me and one other chef. So it was very much I was the head chef, but I was also the sous chef and I was also the CDP and the commie and the KP along with my other chef. So You've recently left the venue and doing some other things, which we can get into shortly. But did that experience sort of change your your approach to your craft and see um, your role differently in the industry? Yeah, definitely. Um, I think the biggest thing I took away from it was how important it is to keep learning from other people, no matter where you are, no matter what you're doing, no matter how much you think you might already know. Um, I definitely learned a lot from my commie. I learned a lot from the owners. And if anything, I craved having other people around me, which um, I didn't have as much as I did in my position before. Tell us a little bit about the creative process when you got in the role um, and, the, and the creation of your food. Was it, was it collaborative or was it all yours? And is there some sort of examples that sort of speak of the food you were doing there? Yeah, for sure. Um, it definitely started collaborative. I went into it kind of telling the owner, Liam, that I was – very unprepared to <laughs> make my own menu. I'd never created a dish before, let alone created a menu. And I wasn't confident in doing that. And he very gracefully said he would help me every step of the way. And I think much to his demise, I don't think he really, <laughs> I, th- I think probably within a few weeks, I was like, oh, okay, Liam, I've had enough now. Can you let me do it? <laughs> um but he was really supportive the whole way. Um, I definitely went into it having no idea what I wanted to do and then very quickly figured out what I wanted to cook. Tell us a little bit about some of the dishes that you had on the menu and, and that sort of exemplified your style of cooking. Yeah, well, I mean, 
I was there for a year. We, we had only been open for a year when I left, but I think from the first menu we had to the last menu, the food is super, super different. Um, if anything, it tells a little bit of a story of me figuring myself out. Um, I started cooking one way and then just slowly developed into cooking another way and cooking differently. Um, I came from a fine dining restaurant and I thought that was the way I was supposed to cook and then figured out that that wasn't the way I wanted to cook and slowly things got a little bit less convoluted and maybe simpler. And I think, you know, one of the first dishes I put on was like a swordfish belly dish, had probably like 11 components. Um, it didn't – now that I look back on it, I don't like it at all, but at the time I was very excited by it. And then one of the last dishes I put on was just a pork chop with a puree, and that was it. And I'm definitely more excited about that dish than I ever could be about the first dish. So, yeah, I think that was definitely a bit of a learning experience. The restraint on the plate like that is something that um, sort of chefs talk about as they get more more mature. What's what's important when you're being that simple on the plate? Like, tell us about the produce and the approach to get it right. Yeah, for sure. I think the most important thing is that each component is almost at its op- in its optimum state or in its own right is really really good. So. Um, you know, I played a lot with kind of fermentation and stuff, as a lot of chefs are right now. Um, I got to play a lot with that at Rogue, so I tried to put something on every dish that was a little bit different or exciting or something we had made um, on the pork chop dish, for example. It was a black chestnut puree, and I was really excited by this flavour the first time I tried it. So I just made a puree that just tasted like black chestnut, but it it was pretty, it was kind of a, like, it wasn't just pureed black chestnuts. It was a bit of a process. It was using a recipe that I kind of used a wildflower for parfait and then adjusted to use with nuts. And then the pork chop was um, a Lindley Valley pork chop. We played with the sizes a lot of times. We started with 200 grams and then went to, 400 grams and then went down to 300 grams. Um, we played with brines and percentages. We ended up on a whey brine, which we found helped the pork chop caramelize on the grill a bit more. And it was very much just a journey of discovery of like, how can we make each component better? Even by the time it came off the menu, I didn't feel like I was done with the dish. <laughs> I don't think we ever felt like we were done with the dish. Um, it's just like, yeah, a constant constantly trying to improve what's on the plate. Well, I want to explore sort of what you're up to these days, but um, take us back to when you were young. What, what sort of role did food play in your family growing up? Yeah, for sure. Um, food wasn't really a recurring part of my childhood, actually. So when it was, I became very attached to those experiences. Um, I... Predominantly grew up with my mum as a sole carer and she was a horrible cook, no good at cooking. <laughs> um, and I never really took that as an opportunity to learn either. I It was very much noodles and mac and cheese um, a lot as a kid, but I did spend a good chunk of my childhood living with my godparents who um, 
apart from being culturally diverse, uh, my godmother's Bulgarian, my godfather's a Maori from New Zealand. They were very family-centric people. So, you know, they took me at a time when I needed a family and they did that with a lot of other kids. So it was a, it was a home that had a lot of kids in it, none of which were necessarily biologically related, but it was a very family-centric home. And I think one of my fondest, not just food-related memories, but one of my fondest childhood memories was um, with my godfather going to find and pick watercress, and then we, were, we would bring it home to make a boil-up, which is kind of a mouldy dish, which is an oxtail soup. Um, but he hated making the dumplings, the doughboys. So he would call someone he knew, which – we all his friends I called auntie and uncle and all their kids I called cousins like it was they're very much a uh their culture is very like all your friends become your family so he would call someone to bring the dough boys they'll bring their kids um they'll bring the dough boys we would make the soup we would get the watercress we would all sit at the table and I used to call everyone auntie and uncle like all the kids would call each other cousins none of us are related to each other at all and it was, it was just probably the the time in my childhood where I felt probably most at home and most connected, and it happened to be through food, which I didn't really know at the time, but looking back is blaringly obvious. <laughs> Were you always sort of thinking about a career as a chef, or did it sort of come later for you? Um, certainly not. I <laughs> kind of, like a lot of chefs say, I accidentally – became a chef. Um, I was at uni at the time. So unfortunately my mum passed away when I was 15. And from then on, I kind of went through the motions. I finished school. I went to uni. Um, I didn't know what I wanted, but I knew what I was supposed to do. So I just kind of kept doing that. And then at some point during uni, very early on, I was applying for jobs like over and over again. I needed a job to pay rent and stuff. Um, and I wasn't getting any jobs. It was really hard to get a job. I was applying like 10 jobs a day, getting no replies. And I must have replied, I must have applied, sorry, for a chef apprenticeship, probably just thinking like, yeah, it's fine. I'm not going to get a reply anyway. And I did get a reply and very impulsively took the job. <laughs> um yeah, deferred from uni thinking I'll go back. And then obviously I never went back. I started as an apprentice chef next week and then I've kind of just been gung-ho ever since. What was it about um, working as a chef sort of in those early years that kept you in the industry and didn't see you go back to do your degree? Um, it's very addictive uh, in every facet. I think the first uh, – thing I really became obsessive over. And I think a lot of chefs are obsessive as much as they don't want to admit it, um, was this was just a small little catering company that I had taken the apprenticeship at. And when I started, all I was doing was making 300 party pies and 300 sausage rolls. It wasn't ex like I wasn't excited by the food that I was making, but I did become very entrapped in the idea of, figuring out a better way to do what I was doing. So I would make, you know, on my first day I would 
it would take me half an hour to make 100 party pies. And I'll go, right, what can I do tomorrow to make 150 party pies in the same amount of time? What can I do to make the party pies look better? It's just like this process of becoming better, finding ways to become better and be better. And it's like a chase that you become addicted to. And I'm still very much addicted to that chase, although I'm not making party pies anymore. Um, And that's definitely the first thing that kind of, it kind of grabbed me by the collar and just hasn't let go. In those sort of early years, you mentioned the small catering company, but what were the sort of venues and people that you worked with um, that had a big impact on you as you started to build your career? Yeah, for sure. Um, I, I think the first place that had the biggest impact was um, the flower factory, which was, I think I only did my apprenticeship for about a year and a half and then I got signed off, which is very, it's a very loose apprenticeship chefing. You kind of get signed off when your chef thinks you're good enough to get signed off and that's what it is. Um, But as soon as I was signed off, I went to the flower factory. I knew Denny a little bit because I had worked casually for him when I was an apprentice. And, um, yeah, he signed me on. And I remember the first day I walked in, just freshly signed off, thinking like, yep, this is it. I'm a chef. Walked in with my knives. I'm so proud. And the first thing he did was, like, grab my knife and chuck it away and then give me a new knife, um, which I still have, and said, all right, don't bring those knives in the kitchen ever again. You're a chef now, not an apprentice. This is your knife. You take care of it. Let's go, basically. And he was a very um, chaotic chef, very artistic. And uh, that kind of shaped the first I, – I was with him for, I think, three or four years. That kind of shaped who I was at the beginning. Um, the menu would change week to week. The there was no recipe book there. It was very much just like, this is what I want it to look like. Taste it. This is how you need to make it taste. So like it was very chaotic, very creative. One of the most creative kitchens I ever worked with, uh, worked in. He very much was just telling stories through food and I was kind of swept up in the moment of it. Um, it wasn't easy. I wasn't always very good at it, but it was very exciting. And then. Um, from there I went to Wildflower and worked under, um, Chef Matt, who's organized and refined and calculated and equally as creative, but, um, in an opposite way. And again, I was like, wow, uh, okay. So this is different. I guess I like this better actually. And it's kind of, I think those two chefs who were, frankly, polar opposites have really shaped who I want to be as a chef, kind of trying to balance the creative and the artistic side of being a chef with the refined and the scientific side of being a chef in a symbiotic way, which is definitely not easy. At, at Wildflower, Matt had a real focus on um, Australian native ingredients. Tell us a bit about the experience and your learnings there. And were there some ingredients um, that you had first experiences with that you can tell us about? Yeah. Um, before I walked into Wildflower, I didn't know a single thing about Australian native food. Um, I didn't know any native ingredients. I had used them before. 
I didn't know that I had used them before though. Uh, I didn't know anything about them. And I remember, I do remember walking in on my first day and tasting gelatin wax and it blew my absolute mind. <laughs> and I was like, holy crap, this grows everywhere. Why do I not know that this tastes this way? And um, I feel so lucky to have gone to work with Matt because he's just so full of not not just knowledge on the subject, but just like pure respect. Like it's obvious that he respects it, not just the ingredients, but the places and the people that they come from. And it's such a pure way to learn about um, Australian native food. And I, it's so easy to just use those ingredients without really knowing why we have them and where they come from. And I'm really lucky, yeah, to have gone to work under him and to learn those little pieces of little nuggets of knowledge. And, yeah, like I, I, I always have those kind of ingredients in the back of my mind. Like it's just something that you can have and use that a lot of chefs maybe don't get the privilege to learn about. So. Do you have any stories or sort of experiences that you had during uh, your time at Wildflower with the native ingredients um, where you did sort of have that education and, and learning? Yeah, or well, probably the um, most interesting ingredient I learned about at Wildflower, which admittedly I still don't know enough about, but um, is the yolk, which is kind of a tuber. Um, I had never seen anything like it before. I don't even know what to compare it to. It's like a potato cross a radish. Um, and I remember him telling me about the York supplier. This was when I was still very early on and maybe he didn't have to tell me any of this stuff, but he did anyway. He was telling me about the York supplier and how the Yolks kind of nearly went out of – uh, like they were endangered as a species, and uh, yeah, I can't. I couldn't even. Rem- I can't remember the specifics, even if I wanted to. And I don't know why I've never asked him again about it because I always think about it. And I've never seen an ingredient. I've never seen the yolks like an ingredient like the yolks before, where um, a chef knew so much about not just the ingredient but where they came from and was using them in a way that respected the story behind the ingredient, I guess. Um, So that just, yeah, really caught my interest. You mentioned that you had used native ingredients before your time at Wildflower but hadn't realised, but, um, you know, you learnt so much while you were with Matt at at Wildflower. Um, What did you learn about using native ingredients in sort of dishes and in that restaurant setting to sort of – really sort of showcase their beauty? Yeah, I think the biggest thing is not using a native ingredient just for the sake of using a native ingredient, like not putting it on your menu just because it might catch someone's eye or kind of taking advantage of the fact that it might be a trend or that sort of thing, but using it because it's the best ingredient for that job, um, using it because you that's the flavour you want. And when you are using it, using it in a respectful way, not just uh, like dumping it on the plate or having it there so it's there is the biggest thing. Um, 
I, I don't want to just put, I like put like as much as I love gelatin wax. One of my favorite native ingredients. It's so delicious. It's just easy to put it on top of something and call it a native dish. And I just really don't think that's the way to go about it. Um, they're not easy ingredients to work with and we don't have all the knowledge about working with them. Um, you know, the native Australians do. So it's important to take that knowledge and get it from the right people and use it in the right way. Tell us about the period of time sort of when you made the move to Bar Brogue and, and sort of leaving Wildflower. How, how did that all sort of transpire? Yeah, that was a little bit unexpected, actually. Um, I left Wildflower. I wanted to take a little break. Um, I think that was around uh, around later in the year. Um, I did a few trial shifts around Perth. Um I really wanted to go to work at Millbrook at the time. Unfortunately, Millbrook's in Jarradale and I don't have a car, so it wasn't an option. And I didn't know what else I wanted to do, so I was just kind of hanging around. And then Matt messaged me and said, uh, you know, I've, just, I've spoken with Liam and he said he's opening a bar, so I put your name forward. I hope that's okay. And I was like, yeah, but that's okay. <laughs> um, and then, yeah, and then Liam contacted me and that's kind of just how it happened. So actually it was Matt who kind of sorted it out and then just fell into my lap a little bit. Um, I spoke with Liam and, like I said earlier, was very candidly unconfident in my position as a head chef, um, just said, uh, you know, I've never done this before. I don't know how to do it. I don't know if I'm going to be good at it. And he very graciously said, okay, cool, let's do it anyway. And then, yeah, just kind of went from there. Well, tell us a bit about finding that confidence and finding your voice on the plate because, you know, like a quick look at your Instagram account, your photos and dishes are so simple and so stunning and that you can see there's so much confidence in them. Where, where did you find that moment where you sort of landed on realising the power of restraint and quality ingredient? Um, I couldn't tell you. I honestly still don't feel confident in the food that I put up. Um, I don't really know how it happens, but usually, you know, usually you just come up with an idea and then I'll go into the kitchen and I'll start executing it or more, more commonly, like my veg supplier will say, Oh, we've got this, this week, we've got this, this week. And I go, Oh, that's really cool. How can I use that? Um, come up with an idea. I'll start executing it. Oh, I don't really like it. I'm not sure about it. And then I'll give it to my other chef and he goes, oh, this is delicious. Like, I really like this. I'm like, okay. And then, yeah, it's, it's very much like using the people around you to reinforce that what you, what like what my brain tells me is good and what, what I actually do with my hands is two very different things. Um, I'll go in and create a dish that I thought was going to be amazing. And then by the time it gets on a plate, um, I don't like it anymore. <laughs> but the people around me do like it and that's the reason I do it at the end of the day. And then um, at Rogue it was very impulsive. So we, we might I might come up with something, put it on the menu the next day and then it would be on the menu for two weeks and I would spend the whole two weeks trying to make it better. So as opposite as that sounds, um, because usually you're trying to make a consistent 
item on the menu, right? That's a that's a big thing about food is consistency. I think it's fascinating how you mentioned that you left Wildflower and you weren't sort of sure what you were going to do and an opportunity arose, but you've done the same thing with Bar Rogue as well. You've sort of left Bar Rogue. Tell, tell us about those decisions and, and, you know, the desire for a break from sort of what you're doing. Yeah, um, I like to think of myself as a very thought out person, but I think actually I'm a little bit impulsive. <laughs> um, sometimes I just have an idea or a thought of what I want to do next or what I want to do now. And if I'm not doing it, then I just put myself in a position where I have no other option, I guess. Um it's the easiest way for me to achieve things um, because my brain definitely will get in the way. Otherwise, um, like I've said a million times, I'm not a super confident person, but when I'm in the deep end, I definitely can swim. So I like to throw myself in the deep end a lot. Um, it's just the, it's just, it's just works for me. It's worked for me in the past. Um, I'll probably keep doing it forever. <laughs> <laughs> well, what's the benefit of, of this approach for you? What's, what do you get from it? Um, it's, a, it's a little bit of an adrenaline. It's a little bit of a thrill. Um, not only that, but it's like so your survival instinct will kick in on, on, a, on a very basic level, of course. Like this isn't a life or death situation, but, um, yeah, you kind of just go into this mode where it's like you figure out you want something and then now it's the only option, so you have to figure out a way to get it. Um, I think that's the best way for me, really. Um, you left Bar Rogue recently. What are you up to at the moment? Yeah, so um, at the moment I'm actually working under one of my old sous chefs at Wildflower, Justin. Um I'm just helping him out as a casual kind of took that as an opportunity to continue learning from him. Cause he's a super, super knowledgeable chef. Um, I haven't done a lot of butchery and he said, I need a casual. And I said, I'll be a casual if you teach me butchery. <laughs> and he said, sure, I'll do that. So um, yeah, even though I'm just kind of in a little bit of a limbo, I'm taking that as an opportunity to still pick up some skills that I don't think I have. Uh, yesterday he threw he threw a pig at me and said, you know, I told you how to do this yesterday, so today you're going to do it. And then that was a lot of fun. Um, yeah, and it's good good little opportunity to learn until I can jump into what I want to do next. The, the evolution of the culinary landscape in Perth has been fascinating to see over the last sort of five to ten years, but particularly since sort of COVID and sort of what's emerging. Tell us a little bit about sort of coming out of, of that and, and what's going on in Perth as a result. Yeah, well, I think during the height of the pandemic, I was very lucky because I was still just a junior chef. Um, I didn't really have any stresses or responsibilities that I had to deal with apart from um, – can I make enough money this week? Um, um, we we're very fortunate, obviously, in Perth. We didn't cop it as hard as everywhere else, I think. But I th in in even at Rogue, because we opened um, 2022, uh, 2021 December, so um, just kind of after the height of the pandemic, but it was still happening. 
uh, and it was my first head chef role. It was very much uh, an adaptive situation. We had to take month by month, week by week. Obviously, it goes without saying there was there was no chefs. Chefs couldn't come from over east. Um, the hospitality industry in Australia relies so much on people coming from overseas as well. Like I think it goes a little bit unsaid sometimes, but we really, really rely on people on working visas a lot. Um, so suddenly we became a self-sufficient state and there wasn't enough chefs. And not only that, but, you know, all the all the owners and all the companies suddenly were at a loss because we couldn't open a lot of the time. Um, it wasn't an easy environment. It was very hostile, very adaptive, but I think a good way to learn how to deal with those sorts of situations. Yeah. What excites you about the Perth dining scene at the moment? I think uh, maybe it's a cop-out because <laughs> I am a younger chef coming up, but I'm really excited about the next generation of chefs like continuing on continuing on I feel like we're at a pivotal time now and I don't know how accurate it is I just feel this way um obviously there's a big generational gap between chefs you know there's the chefs that taught me how to cook and then there's the chefs that taught them how to cook um the chefs that taught them how to cook and then slowly those chefs maybe turn into owners and then the next generation moves up into the head chefs and then that sort of cycle of life happens pretty often. Um, I feel like the people I was learning to cook with are starting to run kitchens and take over kitchens, and it's pretty exciting to see what they're doing. But it's also really exciting to see um, the chefs that taught me how to cook become owners and become uh, venue, you know, running venues and having being able to bring their sort of smaller ideas into something that's an actuality. So there's those two cycles kind of coming to fruition at once. And it feels like there's a lot happening anyway. It feels like there's so much happening. Like many in the industry, you kind of fell into it and fell for the industry as well. What do you love about what you do? Um, I think ultimately my favourite thing about not just cooking but chefing is that it's an industry or it's a job that really encompasses every part of the things that I'm interested in. Um, you know, as I briefly, briefly mentioned earlier, um, it's a very artistic, it's a very poetic job. Um, it is an art. It's also in science. Um, and it's like, it's not often that you get a job where you can kind of explore both facets and get better at both facets. Um, it's not something you can ever master. It's like a constant chase. You're never going to be done learning in chefing. You're never going to be done getting better. You can never be the best. You can never, you, you can never finish. Like you can never, you can never master it. And I think that's really my favorite thing because I'm so, uh, what's the word? I become so overwhelmed with trying to master things, but you can never really master being a chef. Um, 
So it's just constantly exciting and constantly fun and a constant adrenaline rush and a constant thrill and it's stressful and sometimes it's sad and sometimes you're angry, but it's like a con- there's always something for you to chase. It's never boring. Well, I know you're working on uh, your next move and we look forward to hearing what that is. And we've loved having you on Deep in the Weeds today to hear a part of your story. Um, please keep in touch and we'll catch up again soon. Yeah, definitely. And thanks for having me. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Stay tuned as we take a deep dive into the lives of the incredible people who ply their trade in the food and hospitality sector. Special thanks to executive producer Rob Locke for making this all happen. Follow us on Instagram at Deep in the Weeds Podcast or email us at podcast at deepintheweeds.com.au. Stay safe and be well.